Well met, dreamer, and welcome to Nocturne, the umbral planet of twilight tales and slumberant songs. The streets around Rondo were illuminated by many multicolored and multiluminous song lamps, all competing with the silvery light of Saint Cecilia. Most districts would curate more uniform color schemes for their surrounds, but not this one, for he was walking through the Midnight City's Rainbow District. Sweaty and nervous, he was headed towards the Society Royal. A faint aura of red sunlight surrounded him as he hummed. The saturation of the sunlight evolved in synchronicity with the pulse of his tune, but this pulse was easier to feel than to see plainly. The gentle rocking of warmth is what Rondo felt when he voiced this song. Since his days at the Historian School for Quillery and Questioning, this song came to him when he needed to pull confidence from the anxiousness bouncing around inside of him. Right now, he needed a clear head. He had both a favor to request and bad news to deliver to the head of the engineers. His project with them must now be completed faster than they had agreed and have more features too. Rondo also needed to join the next trip to the Far Wilds for materials. This was all by order of the highest heads at the Historians. He had his boss to thank for it, so naturally he spent much of the walk imagining all the insignificant curses Grant deserved as penance. Perhaps someone would finally ask more trifling questions in his meetings, or his moonflower seed brew would have more bits in it next week. As he envisioned these cathartic retributions, Rondo noticed that he had stopped humming, and that his heart was beating faster and harder than a walk deserved. He hummed again and moved his thoughts to more appreciative places. He was glad to be outside and away from the historians, 
and fortunate he could trust the engineers to be practical about the situation, once they knew about it. They had little choice but to deal with it, as the historians were funding this work, but this leverage did not matter to Rondo. He respected the engineers and wished to work with them honestly and fruitfully, lest he just becomes another historian to them. Faster than expected, Rondo reached the southern entrance to the Society Royal. He looked towards the ornithologist's tower to the east and intuited a path to the engineers. He had visited them many times before and, despite knowing many good routes there and back, it felt good to find a new route every time he visited. He chose a path that angled more westerly than usual. He passed by the Nocturnian biology researchers, who he remembered from a previous trip, and the grandiosely named Institute of Holding, which was entirely new to him. Rondo knew he was getting close when he saw the round copper-plated buildings and intricate pipework of the engineers. From here, it was simple to find the center. All one must do is follow the biggest pieces of pipework, and they would take you right to the steam generator that lay in the middle of their department. There were also signs pointing everywhere one might care to find, but Rondo much preferred his method. He soon found himself in the center of the engineers and looking up. The generator stood much like a grand clock tower in a large city. It was round, tall, and with huge rivets and girders supporting its massive height that almost touched the roof of the Society Royal's warehouse. Rondo always admired the efficiency of this structure. First and foremost, it was a functional, high-capacity steam generator, providing heat and energy to their department and beyond. Its secondary function was to provide warm workspaces for the most prominent engineers and easy access to energy that powered all manner of elaborate contraptions. Thirdly, the excess steam was used to power an elaborate mobile that protruded from long metal rods at the top of the building. Here, all the major moons of Nocturne hung like hooked fish on long metal poles. Their movements seemed to weave in between one another, yet their lines never tangled. Each moon was illuminated in the appropriate color by an ornate circular song lamp with various hues and sizes. Lastly, the finely tuned movements of the chronoball arm were connected to four clock faces featuring the standard two hands. Rondo had always wondered how they keep all these hard-to-reach moons illuminated, and today he received an answer. He saw two people standing at the top of the building. One held nothing at all, but the other struggled to maneuver a long metal cylinder. The one with the tube pointed it at the jester moon, which was not only the wrong color now, but rather dim too. The second person then sang into the tube, and the song lamp representing the jester 
began radiating a glinting, golden hue, just like the real thing. The engineers were not necessarily experts in astronomy, but could be said to have expertise in collaboration. He knew this mobile was created in cooperation with the astronomers, who resided in the western wing of the Society Royal. The astronomers would have preferred to be in the tower to the east of the Society. It would have made an excellent home for their telescope. But when the astronomers tried to share the space with the ornithologists, the rear ends of many, many birds made uninterrupted work impossible. Rondo saw he'd spent much of his time gawking and was now on time rather than early. He moved swiftly towards the generator, gripped the rubber-covered door handle, and, feeling a strong heat underneath, pulled at it quickly and entered. Inside was an immense metallic cave. Layers of stairs and gangways attached themselves to the sides of the tower, leading into rooms of various sizes and utility. In the center stood a slim, freestanding elevator shaft that reached up to the top of the building. He never trusted the taut wires holding the structure upright, so the logical part of Rondo's brain could never win over its more fearful ancient lobes. So, he preferred to take the stairs. He waved to the receptionist and then asked after the head of the engineers and was directed to the meeting room at the very top of the building. A restive expression crossed Rondo's face as he asked if they meant the tippy-top of the tower and the receptionist confirmed that, yes, he really would have to go all the way up. He began spiritedly, conveniently misremembering how exhausted he felt the last time he had walked to the very top. Halfway up, a sweaty Rondo eyed up the elevator like a hungry person might gaze at a poisoned berry whenever a step felt particularly heavy. Periodically, Rondo caught a glimpse of the outside through small copper-framed windows as he stepped up and up. Reaching the top, with both him and the air feeling warmer and thinner than when they started, there was only one door to choose from. Approaching it, Rondo hummed to himself and reminisced about his first visit here many, many months ago. The meeting room was also an observation deck, and the view back then had overawed him so much that he forgot to take notes, and agreed to almost everything that was asked of him, and then spent a week rediscovering the tasks given to him and backtracking on the most implausible pieces of work. The room, luckily, did not have the same effect on him now. He billowed warm air out of his shirt and mopped whatever sweat was easy to mop. Then he opened the door and stepped into the room.
Rondo looked past a grand meeting table in the center of the room to meet the familiar gaze of Sorsha, leader of the engineers. She was his main collaborator, but there were two rather unfamiliar faces standing beside her. There was one tall and elegant-looking Nocturnian, and another tall but rugged. They contrasted one another into far more extreme first impressions of themselves than was truly the case. The elegant Nocturnian waved genially to Rondo, while the rougher character nodded towards him. Sorsha addressed Rondo quickest, saying, Ah, oh, welcome back. I hope the stairs were gentle to you this time. He resisted the urge to defend his use of the stairs. He knew it would only bring more attention to the matter, so instead moved towards Sorsha and shook her hand. Sorsha then introduced Rondo to the two strangers. Rondo was the project leader from this project's patrons, the historians. She also described him as the least historian-like historian she had had the pleasure of meeting. Gesturing to the elegant Nocturnian, Sorsha introduced her to Rondo as Chris, head of the Nature Collective, a grouping of natural researchers at the society. She then motioned towards the rougher character. This was Luto. She came from the far wilds and was responsible for sourcing all the new materials they were using for the development of this project. This caught Rondo's attention. He had met one far wilder during his final year at the Historian School of Quillery and Questioning. Students chose whether to intern at a department within the Historians or to perform their own original research. Rondo searched the countryside for histories before settling on the culture of a small settlement to the south. For six months, he met only one person from the far wilds. They spoke a language or dialect that had some similarities to his, but not enough to really understand them. Thus, it was odd for Rondo to see a far wilder like Luto in the Midnight City. He valued the materials she had sourced, so he tipped his head in her direction and thanked her for her work so far. Luto nodded politely in return. Sorsha and Chris then took a moment to complete their business together. As they talked, Rondo considered talking to Luto, but she had turned away from the group, so he figured she was disinterested in small talk. Instead, he walked over to a table with a spread of tiny foods and inappropriately small cups, which he disgruntedly drank from and refilled many times. Listening in to the conversation, Sorsha was thanking Chris for some favor or another, then called to both Luto and him to start their meeting. Sorsha thanked both of them for their work before asking Luto if it was okay to do her update in the Midnight City's common tongue. 
she would then summarize in Faris for her afterwards, which Luto agreed made sense. A delighted Sorsha updated Rondo on their progress. The audio archival device now had an early working prototype. It could absorb and hold sound well and release much of the original sound when required. The engineers struggled to get this far with the materials used in song lamps, but the materials Luto procured, particularly a metal refined from purple ores, made this much possible. The difficulty, now, was multiplying the stored sounds so one could listen to it many times. Sorsha thought the best course of action would be for Luto to find more of these purple ores and also bring back new materials that might work well as resonators. If they could do that, then they could have something close to the final design in one year, just as planned. Sorsha then turned to Luto and began speaking in a slow and broken manner, which Rondo figured must be her best attempt at speaking far ease. Luto and Sorsha appeared to struggle to understand one another, often offering words in both languages to try and bridge the threads of communication between them. Once they had reached an acceptable level of understanding between them, Sorsha moved on to what was needed next. She began listing possible options for new materials and discussing quantities and time frames for procuring more purple ores. Again, she did this for Rondo, then clumsily did the same for Luto. Rondo, however, was rather quiet. He had been waiting for the perfect moment to bring up his news, but in doing so, had let two people work from the assumption that nothing moronic had occurred at the historians. He convinced himself that no time would be a good time to inform them, which made now the best time to do it. He raised his hand and caught both their attentions. Apologies all. There have been some difficult developments on this matter. Sorsha sent a concerned look his way, but Rondo powered on. Um, the project has gained the support from the highest parts of the historians. Well, that's great news, right? Assumed Sorsha. Um, not quite, uh, no. Um, in doing so, they've shortened the timeline to three months instead of the, uh, the original year. Ah. Rondo noted Sorsha's disappointment, but couldn't stop now. There, there's more, there's more. It is no longer going to be a device that helps blind Nocturnians engage with history. They want to mass-produce the device, then deliver history across all of Midnight City, every day. Sorsha opened her mouth to respond, but Rondo continued, knowing it was best to get this done as quickly as possible before any type of misguided hope could be clung onto. And 
They've demanded that I join the next expedition for more materials to ensure its success. Sorsha raised her hands to her head, then pressed her fingers against her temples. She then did her best to relay the events to Luto, who acquired the look of one who stepped in something they would rather have not, before tentatively smiling at the situation. After a moment's thought, Sorsha asked whether an extension or more resources might be possible. Rondo knew this to be a most sensible suggestion, in normal circumstances, but he had experienced the cancellation of many projects that became even slightly problematic in their execution at the historians. There was always a chance it would be fine, but plenty more chances that it would not, especially if his boss led the negotiations. He let Sorsha know as much, and she excused herself to the other end of the room to furiously scribble process diagrams, calculate quantities, and align timeframes. As she did, Rondo turned to Luto. He felt out of place at the historian's best, but Luto had an inscrutable manner to her. He worried how accepting she would be of a new traveling companion that was forced upon her. Looking at her expression, she could have been angry, at peace, thinking, or even daydreaming. He resolved to understand her more and see how well they could talk with one another. He kept his language as simple as he could when he asked, Is it bad that I join you in the far wilds? Luto frowned in thought before answering slowly. Um, no. She articulated this as a question rather than a statement. Rondo then wanted to ask how much common she spoke, but having never personally used the word common before regarding his own language, the word now held a strangeness to it that was difficult to wield in conversation. When he did finally ask her, Uto responded unexpectedly fast. I know basics, foods, plants, pillows, much to learn. The words came out in a hesitant staccato style. She then raised her hands up and performatively looked around the room. This not so much. The response gave Rondo hope that the trip wouldn't be an entirely silent one. Lost in thought, Luto surprised Rondo when she asked him a question. Uh, how much thighs you speak? Of course, there was no reasonable way for him to know any faris at all sitting in front of someone putting all the effort into making their communication work filled Rondo quarter full with impractical shame. He thought back to the far wilder he met during his studies and grasped at any word that came to mind with a mild level of confidence. Uh, hoi hoi? 
spilt out of him. The words grabbed Luto's attention, and her eyes lit up. She then waved at Rondo and responded heartily, Hoi hoi! This was the most relaxed Rondo had seen her in the meeting so far, and a welcome change in demeanor. He responded with a casual joviality at the success. I thought I knew a little. To which Luto could only respond with a confused grimace that reminded Rondo that just by talking, he could force Luto back into her quieter self. He felt that shame with no practical solution again, so he continued as unabatedly as he could manage. The two traded sentences with limited success. Rondo learned they would be going deep into the far wilds, but not exactly where. Rondo tried to tell Luto he had traveled the near wilds before, but the conversation derailed when he tried to explain the name of his school. Luto struggled with the excessive Q sounds, while Rondo wrote down the words and pantomimed their meanings. Quillery was simple, but questioning was very conceptual, and he only confused Luto by asking her actual questions as examples. Sorsha returned from fighting the reality of their situation with pen and paper. She had a determined look that Rondo recognized from previous meetings. She had made the best of their situation and was ready to move on. Firstly, they needed more materials and needed them quickly. Sorsha wanted Luto to source five to ten times more of the purple ore than she had last time, plus some new ores to trial in resonance tube prototypes. Luto seemed to have an issue with this, and after struggling a little, Sorsha realized Luto needed more people to help her carry all those materials, at least three. When Rondo understood, he felt the imagined weight of a heavy pack laden with ores land on his shoulders and steadied himself. Sorsha continued, Every day mattered, and they would need to leave soon. Tomorrow, preferably, if they could find a third person quick enough. Luto inquired about an engineer named Clara, who she seemed to know, but Sorsha informed her that Clara was engaged in an expedition to the south of Midnight City, last she heard. Sorsha put her hands to her temples, seemingly flipping through a mental rolodex of engineers who might have experience in the far wilds and could be available now. To everyone's surprise, Chris stepped forward. They'd all forgotten she was even there. She was wearing the effortless and enviable smile of one who had a problem solved with no difficulties at all. She swung a jolly arm around Sorsha and spoke gently to her. I've... I've got just the guy for the job. Consider it done. Sorsha appeared to trust her greatly, and she accepted the offer with no deliberation. They shook on it, and Chris bounded out of the room, wishing a good day to all who were left inside. 
With that sorted, Sorsha relaxed fully and completely. The whirl of problems and unresolved details seemed to have settled well enough to wait and see what would happen next. Rondo started making a mental list of everything he'd need for the trip, including that he should request Luto's advice on what to bring if they have the time to work through this. He was about to attempt this when Sorsha recalled another meeting that she was now rather late for. She reiterated that Luto and Rondo must meet back here to pick up their third companion for the trip. When Luto and Rondo nodded obligingly, Sorsha waved goodbye as she rushed out of the room with a purposeful and well-earned stride. Alone together, with a panoramic view of the society around them, Luto turned to Rondo and smiled sheepishly. Rondo returned the grin and then pointed towards the exit to the room while cocking his head to the side quizzically. Luto made a series of small head nods to silently agree they would leave together. The two wound their way down the stairs circling the inside of the generator, appreciating the drop in heat as they descended. By the time they reached the lobby at the bottom, they sat down to discuss what Rondo should bring on the trip. Luto retrieved a large and plump backpack she had stowed with the receptionist. Fastened to it were extra packs, pouches and pans alongside the occasional knife and holstered map. This preparedness assured Rondo of her credentials as an expert expeditionary. Luto retrieved her items from the depths of the pack and laid them out in two piles on a quiet area of the floor. As they explored these piles, Luto pointed at items and spoke their names in common when she could checking with Rondo to see if the pronunciation was correct, and Faris when she couldn't. Once her pack was empty, she then pulled Rondo over to the first pile of items. She indicated they would be shared between them by gesturing with her hands. The pile contained cookware, maps, and an ingenious modular tent Rondo had never seen nor heard of before. Luto dithered over a single fork and eventually put one in the other pile, which Rondo assumed were all items he would need to bring for himself. A heavy and bulky fur blanket struck Rondo as a worrisome item to include. They were cumbersome things to bring with one, so he pointed at it and looked to Luto for an answer. Nachgold. If Luto needed this to fight the cold they would be facing, he noted down that he would need something similar 
if not more insulative. He circled this item as extra important in his notes and hoped the historian's quartermaster would have them in stock. After completing his notes, Rondo looked back at the pile of items only Luto needed to bring. He saw tools that he'd never seen used for camping before. Thick ropes, hooks, pickaxes, hammers, all heavy to hand and of clear quality as well. Luto noticed the look of confusion on Rondo's face and provided an answer. They for oars. He felt that he should have guessed that himself, but the answer made him fret further about what he was getting into here. Rondo pointed to the map next, hoping to get an accurate route for where they would journey to. Luto began to open the pages when a panicking Chris interrupted them. Bless Cecilia, you two are both still here. I, I, I require your assistances. Your third is trapped in a tower and can't get down. Rondo stumbled trying to process this. He didn't understand how someone could get trapped anywhere in the society. Chris, however, insisted that this was serious. A passing geologist had heard the man shout for help and reported it, a report which made its way swiftly to Chris. She told them that if they wanted the best chance of their third man being on time and in good condition for the trip, then she would need their help. Rondo sighed and felt his energy leave him. He'd hoped for a break before disembarking, not a rescue mission, no matter how mundane it must be for it to occur within the society. He humped himself, which wrapped a soothing red aura of songlight around him. This would have to do for now. <laughs> 